are listening to Behind the Business Powered by Social House, a live interview series for entrepreneurs and creatives hosted by Tiffany Lanier. Each month we'll interview a local entrepreneur and peel back the layers of what's behind their entrepreneurial journey, brand, and lifestyle. Our goal is to inspire, empower, and support entrepreneurs and creatives as they pursue their work. Fun fact, all episodes are recorded live in front of a studio audience right here at Social House. So if you're local to Lake Worth, Florida and surrounding areas, please be sure to join us for the first Wednesday of every month. We would love to have you. So without further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Welcome to the Behind the Business Podcast, powered by Social House. I am your host, Tiffany Lanier. Today, we are bringing you episode number three of BTB. It's been so amazing to do live in-person experiences. We had so much fun doing this recording. If you are listening to this, we would love to have you in person, especially if you are local to the Lake Worth, West Palm Beach, Delray Beach area. Please come and join us the first Wednesday of every single month as we interview our guests live at Social House. To learn more and to register um, for our upcoming recordings, make sure you visit socialhouselw.com forward slash events. All right. And if you haven't listened to episode two yet, be sure to do that because last month we had an opportunity to interview Darinus Castro of Simply Flowers. And she shared with us her journey to becoming a visionary floral designer and what it takes to own a brick and mortar business. She left us with a few key words of wisdom, which were, you are going to make it. So on behalf of Darren and Social House, just remember, no matter where you are in your business journey, know that you are going to make it. Let that be your May mantra. Whenever it feels like Things are just not going the way that you want, which we all know happens as we are building and growing our businesses. Put that sticky note in front of you to remind you daily that you are going to make it. All of the episodes like this one can be found on Social House's blog at socialhouselw.com forward slash blog. All right, before we get into today's episode, I do want to share a couple of quick house announcements for you. So go ahead, take out your calendar because you're going to want to pencil our upcoming events in. First up is our spring makers meet, and that's happening on Saturday, May 4th from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Social House will be transformed into a beautiful marketplace with eclectic local artisans. From art to accessories and of course delicious food and drinks, you want to bring your friends for a wonderful afternoon at the house. All right, next up is Friday, May 17th. We are hosting Creative Mornings Palm Beach at 8.30 a.m. And if you've never been to Creative Mornings, it is a global breakfast talk series geared towards creatives. CMPB is one of over 160 chapters all over the world. And I had the pleasure of speaking at Creative Mornings Palm Beach last spring, and it was so amazing. The community is truly, I don't know, just a great group of people. It's honestly one of my favorite events that I attend monthly. So I highly encourage you to come uh, witness Creative Mornings if you've never been, especially because we are hosting it at Social House. 
And last but not least, our Build Your Biz workshop series continues on May 23rd with Personal Branding One-on-One, how to amplify the power of your personal brand. You are your brand, right? With social media, we are all leaving a digital footprint, whether we think so or not, whether we want to or not. And because we're becoming more and more reliant on using internet platforms as a primary way to connect, build relationships, and sell, it is pertinent to be seen as an authority on our subject matters. So we know that we learn about people online before we ever, ever meet them in person. So how we digitally show up really does matter. So if you're ready to define the way that you show up personally online and beyond, this is going to be the workshop for you. And you can learn more about this workshop and our whole series on socialhouselw.com forward slash events. Now that wraps up our announcements. Let me tell you a little bit about our guest today. Leslie Gray Streeter is an award-winning pop culture, entertainment, lifestyle, and features journalist who is currently a columnist for the Palm Beach Post in West Palm Beach, Florida, as well as a regular commentator on television and radio. She's a blogger and a regional media personality. Leslie is also the author of the up-and-coming book, Black Widow. And let me just preface this. You are going to laugh when you listen to this episode. Leslie is just such a light and she's just so funny. And we got to really talk about her journey to becoming a writer, why it's so important to build your personal brand, how that helps amplify your work, and how devastation and big life changes can become the catalyst for your most important work yet. All right, here's my interview with Leslie Gray Streeter. You have arrived. I take my cues from Diana Ross. <laughs> we saw her at the Kravitz Center a couple of years ago, and she had four costume changes, and each had a cape. Um, yeah. And every time she came out, she'd sing like part of a song, and then she would toss her cape on the stage, and someone would come get it, like because they're the cape person, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, because you need that. And then at the third costume change. The cape sat on stage for too long. My mother and I were like, oh no, someone's getting fired. They didn't because they like, get this cape. Get the cape. Cape person's done. Yeah. So I like to, it's my homage to the boss. That's, yes. I love that. Right. So do you have your cape person? I, my son, I'm trying to train to be my cape person. He's not good at it. And that's what we do with our kids. Yes. We train them to be all the things. To be all of the things. He's my hype man. He's good at that. <laughs> But the cake thing, uh, we're, we're, we're working on it. We're working on it. That's fair. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. So thank here you. on BTB, we get up all up in your business. Do that. <laughs> Do that. That is, that is the purpose, right? Yeah. So when did you know, right, that writing and journalism is going to be your thing? Like, I want you to take us on that journey of becoming you. Okay. And those of you who are listening, you can't see. I do this. I'm a jazz hands, spirit fingers person. So I imagine that anything I say that's a very long sentence, there's a lot of bah-bah. A lot of gestures. A lot of, those of you who are older, <laughs> in your 40s and older might know who Doug Henning, the um, musician, is. Oh, magic. Yes, I do this a lot. Anyway, so Doug Henning fingers. Um, allergies. Um, when I was like 14, I think. I really kind of figured out that journalism was a thing because like they paid you to write. So I always wanted to be a writer because 
I talk a lot mm-hmm. and I think that my opinion is awesome. I'm joking. And that people should know what I think. And I just, when I was little, I would start um, writing a book. And I thought that if you were an author, you had to do the whole thing. Like you had to start with the cover and I'd draw the cover. It'd always be like some girl who was going through something really, she was a heroic. And then I would do the cha- the chapters and I didn't know what they, I would just make stuff up. It's like, I don't know where the story is going. I don't even know what the story is. And then I would get to the first page and get bored and go, <laughs> next thing. So once I kind of went through all that and I, when I was like probably in eighth grade, I realized that for projects, rather than like, I was really bad at like making dioramas or like paper mache soldiers or whatever, but I could write. So I started writing plays from my projects and I got good responses for it. And I went, oh, maybe there's something to this. And then when I realized that journalism was a thing, um, when I was in, the co- in high school in Baltimore, um, the very first, uh, probably second, second week in, in school, the guy who was my English teacher, who was still a very good friend of mine, said, I am the journalism and uh, I, uh, newspaper advisor, and we're having a meeting after school. And I kind of raised my hand. And I was like, oh, no. Because when you're 14, 15-year-olds seem really old. And 17-year-olds seem very wise. And I went to the class and everyone was older than me because they were like wise 17-year-olds. And I was like, <laughs> oh, no, I, I, I'm a freshman. And, but he told me, I will ask if you were there and you have to come to class tomorrow. So I'll find him. I'm like, oh, no. So I walked in and there was a couple girls that I knew from elementary school. Because once again, that seems like so long. Yeah. When you're 14, oh, when I was 11, I didn't know anything. <laughs> no, I am 14, you know. So... I was hooked from then on. And also I always knew that I wanted to do features. I was, cause I was always interested in movies and music and things like that. I wrote my first review was of Mr. Mister's first album in 1985. And then I wrote a thing about the Howard Jones song, No One Is To Blame. And I said, this is the best song <laughs> that has ever been written. And I was, that is probably not accurate, but it's a really good song. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, people kept encouraging me to have opinions. And I was like, what? And I, I can kept, do that. <laughs> I can do that. So then I had to like back them up and like study things and know stuff, but yeah. So did you ever find yourself struggling to find that voice that you were starting to cultivate? I did because I think I first, I just stole Dave Barry's voice. And I, I'm not alone in that. Um, Rosie O'Donnell talks about how when she first came up, she just stole Jerry Seinfeld's voice and she didn't realize she was doing it because he was the prevalent comic. And he was very, before the show, you know, he was very, he was a huge standup and that cadence and the, what do you think? What's, what's up with dogs, you know? And so she said she heard herself doing that and she would go look back at her older things and go, I'm just doing Jerry Seinfeld. I think a lot of comedians, particularly African-American comedians of my generation in the nineties, were doing Eddie Murphy and didn't realize, and they were doing Chris Rock and didn't realize. So I was obsessed with newspaper columns and I became one. I was obsessed with Dave Barry and I didn't realize that I was stealing basically. And I told him later and he said, where's my royalty check? Mm. He's a lovely person, but I still have not paid him. But (laughs) I, I think that after a while you become comfortable because if you just keep doing, you realize you can't keep, keep stealing from, Pulitzer Prize winning people because people figure it out. It's like they've heard of Dave Barry, so they know that's not you. And you just become comfortable saying what you were saying. 
Um, I think most, any, who's, who's a writer in this room? Is it often you look back at like things you wrote 10 years ago and go, oh my God, they let someone print that? Because it's cringy how much better you've gotten or at least how much more clarity you found in your voice. I just think my voice has evolved. It's very much myself. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like reading my columns or things I've written is basically like having a conversation with me. Mm-hmm. But I think it took a, a while for me to figure out who that was. You and know? I think that's relevant for everybody, no matter what their journey is. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So it's like trying to work on finding your voice and sometimes you still the voices of others while you learn no this is this actually isn't me this is just jerry seinfeld it's someone jerry else seinfeld. <laughs> and, and it's a thing that you become sort of comfortable with it's like my sister and i have an i i love my twin sister whose name is lynn who's a theater professional and owns her own theater company in maryland and she's awesome we talk about like things like american idol where the difference between singing a Whitney Houston song and doing Whitney Houston karaoke are two different things is that a lot of the younger singers will come on. They go, don't sing things like that. Cause they know what it's supposed to sound like in your head, mm-hmm. but you haven't figured out who you are as a singer. So you haven't gotten comfortable in the song. So you don't know, you sing it like the record, mm-hmm. you sing it like karaoke. And once you become comfortable enough with your voice and your craft to zig and zag, you can add your own runs and you can go up when they went down, you go down when they went up. And it's it, it's your comfort and your yeah. thing. So And your confidence that you and your confidence that you begin to establish. Yeah, don't do karaoke, do your own thing. I love good karaoke though. Oh, I love <laughs> I love karaoke too. I just like I when my sister and I do karaoke, we like to do things that like people don't expect. Like our karaoke song, not right now because I have a cold, but is High Enough by Damn Yankees, which, do you know that song from the yeah. early 90s? It's very hairbandy. It's like, it was a super group, Ted Nugent and a dude from Sticks and a dude from Night Ranger. <laughs> I mean, that's what that was. Um, also, um, White Snakes, Here I Go Again is one of my, one of my favorites. And Journey, my, I won't say I can't do it right now, but Journey's uh, Separate Ways, Worlds Apart. That is my song. That is my song. Yes. Man, if you if you weren't sick, I'd be yes. like, go ahead. Not happening and just, today. And just, yeah. and just do it. Well, if anyone were to follow you, social media yeah. kind of witness you in person, right? We quickly know that you are definitely not just a writer or journalist that uh, sits behind the computer all day. I am not. <laughs> you're out there, you're making connections, you're building relationships. And this month at Social House, we're really focused on helping people understand the power of building the brand of you. Yes. Right? Absolutely. So how has building a personal brand helped you really elevate your career? It's so funny. I'm speaking on branding in a couple of days at another group. <clears throat> and one of the things I was figuring out was that I was thinking like what popular brands are. And I was looking at like Coke. You see the logo and you know what Coke is. And you see like the Microsoft logo, you know what it is. And I was thinking like, who has a good personal brand? I was like, Beyonce. Mm-hmm. That, you know, to me, Beyonce and Taylor Swift, I think right now, and Ariana Grande too, but I think it's still muddy, honestly, who she is exactly. I mean, people love her, but I think she's still drawing from a lot of other different mm-hmm. things. Beyonce and Taylor Swift have built, not only have they built their brands, but they've allowed their brands to evolve because the Beyonce of Lemonade is a different person than the Beyonce of Single Ladies, who is a different person than Say My Name, Destiny's Child Beyonce. Mm-hmm. 
And but she's subtle enough in that in that strength and the vulnerability and the just fierceness and comfort within her own skin and you know all of that and that's stayed a constant i think trying to figure out who i was as a writer once again because i write about myself a lot is sort of becoming confident with what my voice is one of the things i realized recently is that i was too self-deprecating mm-hmm. i think it's thing that women do a lot I don't want to like scare anybody with our awesomeness because we don't want to seem unapproachable. We don't want to seem like, oh no, if I admit that I'm awesome, no one will like me. So I'll just say that my butt is big because then, <laughs> then, then people will relate to me because I, I've admitted that I nakedly don't like something about myself. And that's mm. stupid. It's stupid. I mean, you don't want to be like, I am so awesome all the time, but I also want to say, why do I have to put myself down to acknowledge that I've done something right? And I think that as part of my brand, the relatable thing is very, if that's who I am, yeah. I am a nice person. I have a couple of friends in this room, you know, who are friends of mine who know I try to be a relatable person, but also as I've evolved, I've also want to be brutally honest with myself when I write about things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I think that figuring out parts of me that are great and that I want to talk, even the parts that suck, like my self-deprecation, defensive, protective self-deprecation, mm-hmm. I think, are, are things that, as my brand evolves, um, I just use quotation marks, fingers. Um, as my brand evolves, all of that, I, I make sense of that as mm-hmm. well, too. Because like the me of like 15 years ago was much more... And then I did this. Oh, I ran a race, but I was last. It's okay. You can like me because I was last. I'm not, you know, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Over it. Over it. Done. So how has evolving your brand and kind of putting yourself out there? You know, a lot of us, not me, because I definitely have no problem enduring a room, but a lot of people do have some issue kind of just fully showing up in the room Mm -hmm. and like taking up space. I am not that person. Mm. I am not. <laughs> I I don't think anyone has ever said Leslie was in a room and we didn't know. <laughs> I don't think I had a, an editor years ago who said, you have a talent for being the center of attention. Mm. And I said, I know you think that's a bad thing, but I don't. I don't. Not to like, I wouldn't like, wear a wedding dress to somebody's wedding, you know, I wouldn't like, you know, call, I would, I hate this because I love Adele, but some of the songs that she writes, it's like, I know you're happy, but can you focus on the part of you that broke my heart? No, get away from me. It's like, move on. So I won't want to be that person. Like here I am in your moment. I'm stealing your moment. I'm not that person. But I think once again, I'm loud and I'm like, I wear, capes and stuff and I have this hair you know and I like I'm wearing dangly earrings and a sparkly cape and it's 8 30 in the morning so you will notice you will notice me but not even so much in a like I don't want to be a clown you know I don't want to be like that but I just I like that stuff and I, I think that being comfortable once again it's I think everyone does this but I think once again women are told that you have to be within a certain box and you have to be visible, but not so visible. And you have to be seen, 
but not so loud. And I just, if you feel like being loud today, as long as it's not like, once again, interrupting anybody's wedding or something, be loud that day. If you want to be reflective one day, be reflective that day. Do a thing that's you, that's appropriate. Mm-hmm. It's not like, <clears throat> you know, not adhering to the rules of of the room and of propriety, but sometimes you can tweak that stuff a little bit. And like I said, the more I get, the older I get, I just turned 48 last week. And I um, have known it. Thank <laughs> you. Um, I, I think that the older you get, the more comfortable you are with how you take up space. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have become, and I hope to for the next 40 years become next 48. Do you have any advice for those who either are younger and kind of de- and stepping into their own, or even if you're not younger, but you're still learning to be more comfortable kind of taking up the space in your own personality, yes. right? Not trying to be you or me or Jerry Seinfeld yes, in a room, absolutely. but being your own powerful self as is when you show up. Boy, that's good. I think part of it is there's such a balance between being your authentic self and being Dave Barry and Jerry Seinfeld and then being this combination of things that you just do to, to put a like a, a bookmark in it until you figure it out and having it be the wrong thing and then having to come back when you figure out who you are mm-hmm. and correct that. Go, I wasn't really that person. That's just the person I was. Me. That wasn't me. <laughs> That's just the person I was. I mean, it just, I was talking, we were talking about, some, about Shark Tank earlier. And you have this moment, and obviously they talk about Shark Tank, they could be in there for two, three hours during these presentations. But you see 15 minutes of it. Mm-hmm. And you can see, you can sense when they're on the wrong foot, when they come in and they are too aggressive or they're too passive or they don't know their numbers. And you're like, Mark Cuban is going to murder you. It's <laughs> going to be awful. And because they had a moment to inhabit a space and they screwed it up and you know they want to do over. And it's just, you don't get a lot of do which particularly now with social media. It's so hard because now there are people whose job it seems to be is when the minute that you show up is to find what you tweeted five years ago and without context, tell everybody what that was. Right. So I would say, you know, mind your tweets, mind your likes, (laughs) mind your tweets, mind your tweets. (laughs) And also give yourself a break for not having been the person that you thought you were going to be when you were 25, when you were 30, you know, yeah, just, I mean, be, like your core morals and you know, values and stuff, but let that person, I'm a different person today than I was, you know, when I got married almost 10 years ago. And then when my husband died four years ago, almost, I'm, I'm still me. I'm still like a good person and a you know good friend. And I still have my basic, whatever, but I have less time to BS now. I feel like life is precious. Mm-hmm. Like in a, it should be like a road trip movie like Tiffany Haddish and like the girls from girls trip where they just go and like life is too short. Someone's got cancer. We're going to go, you know, just shouldn't, you shouldn't have to have cancer to live your life. Right. It shouldn't have to be a bucket list situation to do it, <clears throat> but just like say, what, what are the things that I want to do? What are the things I want to write about places I want to visit? Do them now. I always say, and this is in my book. If you told somebody that you were going to have coffee with them and it's six months and you still haven't had that coffee date, Stop what you're doing right now and do that. Yeah. Because not just because you're afraid they're going to die, 
or you're going to die. But why not? Why not do that now? Why not do those things now? So I think that gets giving myself permission to get the, to not put off the things that I want to not put off pleasure to not put off like not working or rest and to say, how can I work that still be productive and work that into where I am now. So really to kind of wrap up that is allowing for the evolution. Yes. Allowing for the evolution of you to show up in all the mini faucets and all the mini phases. I think so. Cause one of the worst things about brands, particularly if you, I'm not anyone who's listening who is say a 20 year old Instagram influencer who, whose brand is I wear clothes that people send me because they're free and I wear makeup that people send me because they're free. That is cool if that's going to get you into college or if your parents are going to cheat and get you into college. <laughs> sorry. Not or sorry. Aunt Becky. Not cool. Not cool, Aunt Becky. But, um, but I look at those girls. I look at um, Lori Laughlin's daughter and I think you're never going to escape that. You know, I hope you do. And maybe she'll write a book five years from now. Um, But it's like, if you've made your identity one thing at 20, it's okay. But make sure it's not a thing that is so defined by someone else that you can't get away. I mean, this is so shallow, but I'm a pop culture person. So here goes. I was in college in the early 90s where the rise of the actual supermodels, not just everyone was supermodels. Cindy Crawford and Naomi Campbell and um, all of those women who were model and Kate Moss, they had a personality and they had a, their celebrity was from being models. Like now you look at like InStyle, whatever it's all like with Paltrow and stuff. But it used to be, it's like, they weren't just people who wore clothes. They were people who had a, their fierceness and their, their, the way that they, Alec Weck, you know, her, who was beautiful Somalian model, was very, very, very dark, with very, very short hair. And she was just striking and she commanded the stage like, yes, I am here. And I love that. And it's great to do that because that's you. But now because of the internet, I think sometimes we've just become a, our identity is what we consume. Mm-hmm. It's not what we make. Our identity is my labels, you know, like literally the labels I am wearing that I'm wearing because someone gave them to me. It or the take, titles. Or the titles. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't take any imagination to wear free stuff. Mm-hmm. It doesn't take any creativity or genius to like eat at a place someone told you to eat because that's what they told you to do. And it's sad to me because we have so much um, technology to be creative and, and to do really groundbreaking things and have knowledge. And then you still have people on Twitter going, Someone will die and they go, who's that? It's like, if only there was a machine that someone had invented where you could type in that term and they could tell you who it is. (laughs) And you didn't reveal yourself to be a complete. (laughs) I said a word, people. You can probably figure it out. I want you to come a little closer because I feel like you're falling off. (laughs) I probably am. The cape energy is moving me that way. Yeah, I think when it comes to... Building a brand, building a personal brand, it's putting the personal back in personal branding. Yes. Mm. I think too, and once again, I think that vulnerability is really tricky because literally making yourself vulnerable means that you're taking out your means of protection. And part of 
building and crafting a thing is that you have personally and carefully protected and, and crafted it. So having a door, an open door, an open window in your brand, which is what I do, can be really tricky because you don't want to say too much, but you don't want to say too little. You have to figure out like, okay, I'm going to write this thing. How much of it do I want? How much of me do I want to give today? Mm-hmm. Um, my, my husband used to say, we go out to dinner and he would say, do you want to be Leslie Grace Streeter today? Or do you just want to like go get a pizza? And I was like, because he understood the difference. And that is my actual name. My name is, it's not a married name or a stage name. My actual name is Leslie Grace Streeter. Um, Gray was my grandmother's maiden name. So my sister's maiden name, middle name is Evans, which is my other grandmother's maiden name. So we were born with really professional names. <laughs> Thank you, mom and dad. Um, <laughs> but the idea that I know that by being this person that people get to know, they feel like they know you. So they feel like they can interrupt you at dinner and they can, you know, um, tap you on the treadmill. I'm like, ah! <laughs> you know, um, and that happens a lot. And I just, I do wear earrings to the gym. Because I just like wearing earrings, but also because people recognize me at the gym. It's like big earrings? No. I wouldn't like wear stats. these. I like, well, and I only wear clips. My ears closed up, my holes closed up a long time ago. So they're usually like, they're significant. They're not huge, but they're like <laughs> flat to your face, flat to your ear. But I do like, I don't wear lipstick or anything, but I, I ran a 10K last week to celebrate my birthday and I wore earrings. Because I knew people were also, I, it was it was slow, and I'm slow, and it was hot, and I was going to look bad. <laughs> so the earrings. Yeah, I looked somewhat yeah. together. Also, I, when I, sometimes when I run, this is so paranoid of me as a woman, and also, I hate to say as African-American, I want people to know I'm not homeless. So when I'm running, <laughs> I figure if I'm running and I'm, I look kind of disheveled and tired, they don't go, who's this homeless person who has a problem? Oh, she's wearing earrings. <laughs> you know? I don't know. Not that almost people don't wear earrings, but it's like she accessorized somewhere before she left the house. Yeah, okay. okay. It's true, though. I'm going to pivot because... where else is there to go with it? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that and... Um, I want to talk about your up-and-coming book. Yes. Black Widow. Black Widow, yes. So you already mentioned this, but you lost your husband in 2015. 2015, yeah. And you are a widow. And black. And black. So with that being said, can you tell us a little bit about why you felt the need over the last couple of years to write this book right now and the significance of the title? The significance of the title, besides being accurate, um, I'm black and a widow, is that I have like three or four titles coming up to it. Um, one I can't remember. I think for a while I called it like Untitled Widow Project. And I thought I'd be like cool to like just call it that. It's like that sounds stupid and pretentious. Don't do that. So um, I called it If I Were Brave for a while, which is named after a Sean Colvin song, which means a lot to me. And my agent was like, no one knows what that is. I was like, okay. So then I called it for like about a minute and a half. I called it Grief Cake, which he hated. Basically, and that was like, um, you know, like, um, like stress eating. And that was sort of like just one, it was a chapter where I like, I gained a lot of weight after I became widowed because I was eating. I called it like grief cake. I ate everything. Everything was grief cake. And he's like, that's stupid. Move on. So I was sending him like 80th version of it. And I had to call it something. 
So I wrote Black Widow. And he emails me right back and he goes, I know you're joking, but keep that. That's good. And then much later, James Patterson, who has become really nice to me. He's always been nice to me. He's become supportive. He said, don't ever let them change a title. A title is great. Don't let them change. It's like, well, James Patterson says not to change the title. So that is the title of the book. Um, title of the book. So um, the other thing behind that, which is funny because I kind of came to it in a weird roundabout way. When I first started researching the book, I Googled um, African-American memoir. I don't know. Those of you who've written books know that if you're pitching them, you have to write a proposal. And part of your proposal says comps, like what books are like yours or not like yours. Why does the marketplace need your book? Why are you the person that should write your book? And most of what I came up with when I did a Google search were James Baldwin and Cornel West and like very old books or books like um, Donnie Coates' uh, Between the World and Me, which are incredibly important books, but are specifically about the struggle of racism. And I thought, where are the books about general experiences that happen to be from an African-American perspective? Not the, because there is no the African-American perspective, but where's a book like that? I mean, because there, at that point, Sheryl Sandberg had been with a water book, Plan B, um, Joan Didion's book, which was very influential to me, even though I couldn't be any more unlike Joan Didion, um, The Year of Magical Thinking, uh, which is such a good book. Um, and so there were, and Patton Oswalt, who's a hero of mine, the comedian who lost his wife and did an amazing stand-up thing about, <clears throat> if you ever have a chance to Google Polish Woman of Doom, which is his thing about a woman who's a TSA agent, who he, who basically after a weekend of him believing that he has gotten his daughter over Mother's Day and they're fine and they're on the way back home to LA, this woman just wrecks it. And says, oh, to be without your mother on Mother's Day, it's so horrible. You'll never get over it. Have a nice flight. It's like, ah! And that was like that vulnerability that people wrote about. So those are those specific things. And they're all white people. And they got to write their experiences about grief and widowhood specifically. And there was nothing like that written by someone who wasn't white that I could find that was mass produced. And we were a major publisher and stuff. So I was like, I'm going to write that book. Because I took from all of those experiences, mm -hmm. but I figure people can take from mine. I mean, I hope that those of you who are not black can draw a lot from my book. Right. But I hope that those of you who are can see parts of your experience in my in mine as well. You know, that's specific to that culture. Mm -hmm. And then why shouldn't we have that? Yeah. So I agree. With there that. you are. Okay. So to kind of back up the first part of that question, which I mean, you're black and you're a widow so that's why it was appropriate for you to start writing that book was it a cathartic practice for you to just do it then versus wait you know 10 years from now to write the day that scott died i was in my kitchen in lake worth about a mile from here and scott iman who is a friend of mine who's the former books editor at the post who's very successful hollywood historian hollywood historian uh, was in my kitchen and I've been trying to write random books that never went anywhere for ages because I write for a living. So I'm always at my desk <clears throat> and I get something and just get bored. Like my books when I was five, I go, ah, second page, who cares? And keep moving. So he was in my kitchen and I said, I think this is my book. It just came out of my brain. And he goes, I think it might be too. 
And I had no other way to process it other mm-hmm. than it came out of my brain because I've always, as a columnist, increasingly, particularly since 2012 when my father died, I stopped just writing about cocktails and, and Beyonce and the Kardashians and started writing about really important, less deeper than surface things about my own life. So I needed to just get that out of my brain mm-hmm. so I didn't drown in it. And then I thought, also, I'm a writer professionally, so maybe there's something to this. Maybe this will help me support my child because I'm now suddenly a single mother. And print journalism isn't necessarily the most stable thing in the world. I mean, so all these things were happening, and it, but mostly just came from the idea that I had something to say that was, was helpful to me to process it and might be helpful to other people. Yeah. So. It's important. So I recently started writing my first book, which I'm excited about. Yes. But I'm in the very, very early stages. Um, and I know a lot of people who want to write books, mm-hmm. but know that it's overwhelming. Like, it could just be so overwhelming, like, just even thinking about what that process looks like from beginning to end. Now that you're on the other side of writing, can you share with us a little bit about, like, the journey kind of behind the scenes of starting and writing that book? I will say that there's a, I follow a lot of literary agents on Twitter. And one of them said, don't say you're an aspiring writer. If you write, you're a writer. Writer, write, being a writer doesn't mean you sold a book. It doesn't mean anyone's ever heard of you outside of your own blog or your own family. It just means that you write. Mm-hmm. So I think if you embrace that at the very beginning, I am a writer because I write. I am a writer. <laughs> there you are, Tiffany. Yes, you are a writer. <laughs> and start there. I mean, I think it's not easier. I'm more in the practice of writing because I write professional. Right. So it, the, the adjustment was going from a one and a half page column to telling an actual story. And when I first started writing it, one of the early criticisms of it was that it read like a series of columns rather than a whole narrative. And it's okay people do that. Mm-hmm. But often that's people that you already know who they are. So they've earned the right to kind right. of be piecemeal. Um, or I tell essays or whatever. Um, and you often notice that like someone will write a book and then the next book is a bunch of essays. It's because that was easier. It's someone decided to make more money off them while they were hot and they did that. So this needed to have a, have a narrative. Um, basically figure out the story that you want to tell. I decided that it was going to be about the first year of my widowhood, which because God is a DJ, as Pink said, um, was very, not complete, but it's like my husband died on July 29th, 2015. And then my son's adoption was um, final on July 22nd, 2016. So it was nearly a year, wow. almost a year. And I think that happened so that the end of July would not always be a completely awful time for me mm-hmm. because something really good happened. Right. And right around the time of the anniversary, something really bad. So I couldn't be completely ugh about it yeah. and just kind of I think parameters are good I think it's a lot of times like when you'll see books people write it's about it's not their whole life mm-hmm. it's the year they went to Spain you know the year they worked on Habitat for Humanity or the six months trip they took whatever because being able to figure out who you are through a specific experience is also it can be easier for people to digest also it's easier I think sometimes for writers to um to contain it versus thinking you're michelle obama and writing like becoming yes okay. see once again <laughs> you are if michelle obama's book was and here's when i met oprah 
you would you would read it anyway. Mm-hmm. You because you already are invested in Michelle Obama. I am. Oprah, same thing. I mean, Oprah can really go on and go, I like bread. And they go, yes, tell us more about the bread. Oprah. The whole book on all the bread you've ever eaten. All the bread you've ever eaten. And I would read that book. Um, I, I think that getting people, platform is such a big thing. You know, I read something depressing, once again, on literary Twitter, that someone had been told that even having a social media reach of 100,000 people wasn't enough. That they went to, a, a, and I don't have that. Um, and platform was a big deal when I was pitching my book. They basically said in a very nice way, it's a very nice story, but no one knows who you are. So who was, who's going to care mm-hmm. about your story? I think that's what people get the most fear is around like, is anyone going to care that I even write, put all my heart, soul, and energy oh, into I this know. book? And is anyone going to read it? Is anyone gonna, and if those of you who can't see me, I'm taking a pretend knife and slitting my chest with it because that's what it feels like to just dump all of your onto onto a page um not literally because that would you wouldn't be able to read it because of the blood um all the blood it's hard for typing but um sick and then i say something so stupid even i can't stand it so um i i think that I'm trying to figure also figure out what's okay with you to write about like if you're writing about yourself saying, am I going to tell the story? Like I decided in the story very early that I was going to keep a lot of the details about my son's adoption private. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is public because he's my kid. So he's there. What I do say is um, he was a relative is a relative now officially, but was a person who was in my family who I found out about when he was a couple days old and was in foster care and then came to us. I don't write about his birth parents because it's their story, not mine. Mm-hmm. I don't write about, I write about what I know of the six months that Scott and I tried to bring him down from Baltimore. We were born in the same hospital too. So that's great. Me and the boy. Wow. Um, but I made a decision early on that that's not my business. And if he's not making the choice mm-hmm. and I realized I was making the choice to tell everyone that he was adopted mm-hmm. for him. But then again, people saw me around like worth for a year. They knew I wasn't pregnant and I showed it with a baby. So it's not like it was a huge surprise to anyone. So I try to say, what are details that people could have figured out anyway? And what am I giving you? Mm -hmm. That's not about me. That's about him. So I try to keep those details very minimal. And if he wants to tell that story, he will do that. So it's also like a niching, a niching down process within yes. your story. Within the like story. learning how to navigate that. And also because I think a lot of times, like anyone who's an editor I know will read things and go, well, it's weird you didn't talk about that more. Or if you weird you didn't talk about that more. I think if you have an answer for why you didn't or you can expand. Also, people can tell when you're writing around things. Mm-hmm. They can tell when you're trying not to say things. So I would tell people, figure out what you're comfortable with. And maybe if it takes you two, three years to write your book, Maybe you will become more comfortable if you have more distance. Mm-hmm. I, I do. There are things in my book now, and I'm getting back hopefully very soon, my third round of, of edits, and it goes in production in the next month. It's very exciting. We're already talking about I got an email yesterday about publicity photos and, like, book covers. I'm like, it's really happening. Because <laughs> every time I get an email, I'm like, they've changed their mind. They want their check back. <laughs> and it's gone. 
So good luck with that. The advance has left the building. <laughs> so yes. Well, thank you. Um, I feel like we could just stay here and I'll talk to you even more about like getting a book agent and all of those things. We might have to do a part two. Yes. Uh, I also think very, very quick. Yes. Go. How I got my agent is that once again, I am super like, there's some things I'm not anal about. My car is a mess. My room is a mess. My desk is a mess. I'm anal about things like vacation planning or planning the perfect vegan Easter. I'm a Pinterest fool. You know, there's things like I'm details of stuff. And so the agent thing, I just did a lot of research. It's what I do for a living is read stuff. So like I went and I found, um, you know, different listing, like editor and publisher has a list of agents. And one of the things the I hate the word hack, just like I hate the word artisanal now, because these things don't mean anything anymore. Makers. Yes, I made coffee. You made a thing. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Anyway, getting too far ahead of that. But what I will say is that one of the things I found is that the hack, quote unquote, is to find newer agents because newer agents are trying to build their book. So basically you go and a lot of these have databases where you go and you literally enter in keywords like African-American memoir, whatever, and it spits out a thing. And I found that a lot of people that I pitched were younger than me. And so you say, oh, they go, ugh. Because that sounds awful and sad. And they wouldn't even ask for the whole proposal. They're like, no, thank you. Namaste. Um, my agent is my age. He actually had been the marketing head of Penguin for 20 years. And when he took a buyout, he became a book agent. Mm -hmm. So even though he was a new agent, he's incredibly well-versed in, right. in the business. So I lucked out. I emailed him, sent him a cold call email, basically. And three hours later got an email back. And so right. that was 2017. Yeah, so mm -hmm. we've been working together two years now. So yeah, it, it just, it took really well. It took like a year. Yeah, the reality of it. <laughs> there, there are no shortcuts, yeah. there's no hack. This is not, even like the people on American Idol, they used to pretend that like they found Kelly Clarkson walking down the street. She'd actually had a book, she had a, a record deal before that she'd lost. She wasn't just a waitress. She was a person who had worked very hard in her career. And the most successful people on those shows are the people who have a background in that. They don't want you to know that because I want you to think that Simon Cowell did everything. But he didn't just go to your high school and find you. Find you. you worked really hard to get to that place. So you've got to work hard. There's no work around. I would love to, yeah, and I would love to end it there because we, have, we do have a fire round um, okay. quick questioning. But I think in the world of internet and everything seeming like it happens overnight, we sometimes forget that people really have been doing a lot of work in the background for years. And just because they start a new page and it seems like they have catapults does not mean that they just started today. Today, They just started something that you're now visibly okay. seeing, but everything has been building and compounding in the background. And I think that's important for all of us to keep in mind, especially when we're just starting out and we're like, why can't I be that person? Or why can't I be there yet? Or why don't I have the book deal? Or why don't I have, you know, the however many followers and those oh, types of people? The jealousy that happened when I announced and it like jumped out the page. I didn't even realize it. I said I had booked and people were like, oh, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> I actually made someone feel bad. They go, I get signed deal. They go, I'm jealous. I go, well, you know, I'd lost my husband, dude. It's not like, right. I didn't like write a book about hats. I wrote a book about losing my husband and I, you know, the blood on the page and everything. 
So it's okay for me to get a book deal. It's okay. You don't have to be jealous of that particular thing. Shut up now. So Celebrate. <laughs> celebrate. Don't let's hate. celebrate. Don't hate. <laughs> That's how we're going to end it there. So let's get into a quick fire round. So okay. these are just like either or type of answers. Uh -oh. Okay. Okay. Let's, let's try to make it happen. Right. What's your favorite tool to use to get your job done? Twitter. Twitter. All right. Out of all the people who had a chance that you had a chance to interview over the years, who was the coolest? Sydney Poitier. I'm going to go into that, but I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> uh, go to the movies or Netflix and chill? Well, the Netflix and chill part, you know, it's like the whole like sexy time thing. So I, that, was, that sounds fun. So let's do that one. <laughs> Outside of social media, what apps do you use the most on your phone? Oh, gosh. Um, my, my, my fitness pal. My fitness pal. That is yes. yes. Favorite book of all time? Lonesome Dove. Lonesome Dove? Yeah, by Larry Murtry. And the quote that changed your life? I'm going to go back to Sean Colvin. Um, from the, the song that I did not use as my book title, that says, um, you can only, have, basically it's like, getting over yourself because you can only go so far until you stop looking back. It's like you're waiting for Godot and you pick your sorry ass off up the street and go. And you start, you can, cause you stop feeling sorry for yourself and you just go, I wallowed in my wallow too long. And now what do I do? Mm -hmm. And that to me, that's what my thing is. Okay. Be sad. Um, there's a project runway uh, episode from like the second season. This one was crying. She was so stressed and her coworker says, you can cry, but cry and cut. Cry and cut. Keep cutting. You can be sad while you're doing. I say to my son all the time, you know, you can be mad while you're putting your toys away, but be mad with yes. choice away. And so, <laughs> so cry and cut. That is basically the synthesis of cry, cry and cut. Yes. Cut. I love that. Thank you so much for Thank being you. here with us today. I appreciate you. Thank yeah, you. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Behind the Business, powered by Social House. Learn more about today's guests, upcoming events, and how you can be a part of our live studio audience at socialhouselw.com. And don't forget to connect with us on Instagram and Facebook at our handle, socialhouselw. Until next time, remember, business is always better together. So get out of the house and get social. <laughs>